This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Squandro was soaked to the bone, but he did not feel cold. In his haste, he had left home barefoot, but he didn't feel the thorns and stones that tore at his feet. All he could feel was rage. He stood on a rocky outcropping above the falls and looked out onto the roiling water of the river. Squandro put out his hand and spoke the words that the shaman had given him. A strange sensation swept over him. The world beyond the river seemed to fall away, and he was left standing alone with the dark and the water. From the furious tumult of the river, a looming shape rose. Its skin was puckered and wrinkled, the pale white of a corpse. It had a human form, but it was taller than anyone on earth, and thinner than even the most emaciated of starving men. The thing scuttled up the side of the bank. It stood before Squandro and peered down at him. Its eyes were blank disks, a piercing and unearthly shade of blue. They seemed to move, swirling hypnotically, as though they were not merely flesh, but windows into a faraway dimension. A terrible place of cold, dark, and eternal suffocation. The thing reached out an awful hand, touching the man who had called it, as he spoke the words that would tie a curse to the river forever. Welcome to Haunted Places on the Parcast Network. I'm Greg Polson. Every Thursday, I take you to the scariest, eeriest, most haunted, real places on Earth. This week, join me on a supernatural journey to the Saco River and discover why, to this day, it's haunted. At Parcast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. And if you enjoyed today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help. We also now have merchandise. Head to Parcast.com slash merch for more information. Listen to more episodes of Haunted Places, as well as other Parcast shows on your favorite podcast directory. The Saco River runs through over a hundred miles of lush New England countryside. It cascades through the White Mountains in a series of clear, deep pools and rapid eddies until it meets the Atlantic Ocean near the towns of Saco and Biddeford. Its waters are cold and clear, but they can also be deadly. 
death records going back as far as the 1600s show that up until 1947, not a single year had passed without the river claiming the lives of at least three victims. Even today, murders, suicides, and mysterious deaths are still rife along the banks of the seemingly peaceful river. Some attribute the unusually high Saco River death toll to more otherworldly forces. Legend has it that years ago, a Sakoki chief put a curse upon the river. People say he sent forth an ancient creature to right an ancient wrong by taking the lives of three white men every year. Most of those people would also say that the curse is justified. Mika peered back at the men in the little rowboat. She wasn't sure what they wanted from her, but she knew it couldn't be good. She had only been rowing for a few minutes, but already her arms were on fire. Menui was screaming as he clung to his mother in fear. He buried his face in her skirts and pressed his tear-stained cheeks against her legs. As Mika came up on the fork in the river, her heart dropped. Her plan had been to head down a creek where the men could not follow her, but her way was blocked by a fallen tree. The only remaining path led straight to the falls. She looked back at the men chasing her, and then forward to the churning rush of the waterfall. The men laughed cruelly as they neared Mika's canoe. One of the sailors reached out and seized upon the thin birch bark of the little boat. Mika tried to look back at him defiantly, but when she looked in his eyes, she shrank away in fear. They were a shocking shade of blue, flecked with white, like an icy winter sky. They seemed to swirl with an impenetrable depth of unspeakable evil. She could have sworn they were not human, but the eyes of a demon. The man called to his friends in his own tongue. Then, in one swift motion, he snatched up Menui. Mika reached for her baby. She pleaded with the man, begging for him to spare her child. But it did no good. For a terrible moment, the man held the little boy above the rushing water. Then, as though it were nothing, he tossed the struggling babe into the river. Cruel laughter rang out as the child sank below the surface. Mika dove headfirst into the churning waters, reaching for her son. But the current was fast, and it had already swept the screaming boy ahead of her. Mika raced against the rush of the river. She could see Menui's little fists as they rose above the water. If only she could get to him in time. She reached out the tips of her fingers just inches away from the blanket that he had been wrapped in. Finally, she felt the touch of cloth beneath her fingers. She pulled him close. For a moment, Mika felt relief, but then she looked around. She'd gotten dangerously close to the falls. She frantically churned her legs, trying to keep herself and her little boy above the surface of the furious river. Mika tried to turn her body towards the shore, but the current was too strong. 
She clung to her baby as the rapids swept her over the edge. The last thing she saw as she fell was the swirling tumult of the river, deep and blue, and cruel as the eyes of the man who had killed her. <laughs> In the late 1600s, the Sokoki people lived peaceably on Sako Island, a speck of land in the center of the river. The Sokoki are a tribe of the Abenaki, a Native American and First Peoples group spread over northern New England and parts of southern Canada. In the mid-1600s, the Abenaki were growing concerned about the European appetite for land. Some advocated rebellion, but a Sokoki chief named Squandro counseled restraint. That was until 1675, when a group of drunken English sailors spotted Squandro's pregnant wife canoeing with her infant son. They had heard a racist rumor that Native American infants could swim from birth and decided to test it by throwing the child into the river. The woman, her son, and her unborn child were all killed by the sailors' cruelty. Squandro's grief led him to strike one of the first blows against the English in what would eventually become known as King Philip's War. No one knows what became of the sailors. Legend has it, they reaped what they had sown. Eric stumbled out of the pub. The muddy alley in front of him was spinning in a way that made his stomach churn. He made his way towards the riverbank and the little dinghy where he could sleep off his drunken stupor. There was something ominous about the river. It was a new moon, and it felt as though the darkness of the night was pressing in all around him. When he looked into the river, it seemed thick and viscous, more like blood than water. Human bodies seemed to writhe beneath the unholy liquid. Eric shook his head. He was just seeing things. He stepped into the boat and lay down on the wooden bench. He closed his eyes, and for a moment, he almost drifted off to sleep. Suddenly, he bolted upright. The boat was moving. Eric squinted through the darkness. He couldn't see anything, but he could hear the rushing of the river. It was faster, louder than it had been in the harbor. It almost sounded as though they were approaching the falls. Maybe the boat had drifted away. Maybe in his drunken state he had forgotten to tie down the moorings. But of course, that wasn't right. The boat had been moored when he'd gotten into it. Suddenly, Eric's heart jumped into his throat. He heard the sound of something coming towards him. Something big and strong something that could swim against the rapid current of the river. Eric's mouth was dry. His hands were sweating. He didn't want to see what was coming towards him. He began to tremble as an ice-white hand reached up and gripped the edge of the boat. Bit by bit, the thing climbed up into the boat. Its skin was white and shrunken collapsing around its emaciated body in waxy folds. Its mouth was a puckered black hole, and its eyes, 
Its eyes were blank, blue disks. They seemed to flow like water. Looking into those eyes was like peering into a bottomless river, watching it churn and gush with a violent fervor as it crushed all those who stood in its way. For a moment, Eric was paralyzed by fear. He couldn't move. He could barely breathe. He pushed himself back towards the end of the boat, scrambling to get as far from the thing as possible. The creature stood. It was taller than any man or beast he had ever seen. It arched its back as it shuffled towards him, its waxy feet sticking with each step to the wooden bottom of the boat. In a terrified frenzy, Eric leapt from the boat. He used every ounce of his strength to propel him away from the creature, but he could hear it squelching its way down the side of the boat and into the water. Once it sank beneath the surface of the water, it moved even faster. It was only a moment before he felt the cold grip of an unearthly white hand clutching his ankle. He struggled against it, but the creature was too strong. Eric looked into the creature's cold blue eyes and let out one last long gurgling scream before it pulled him down, down into the depths of the water. The curse of the Saco River didn't make an appearance in New England folklore until the early 1800s, when a poem popularized the tale of Squandro and his wife. Whether the curse is real or not, there is no denying that the river has taken more than its fair share of lives. We'll have more on the deaths that haunt the river after a brief message. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now, back to the story. In the mid-1800s, the city of Saco had been transformed from a sleepy rural hamlet into a bustling center of commerce and activity. The island that had once been Saco Island was renamed Factory Island in honor of the cotton mill that was constructed there in 1831. Young women from all over New England were flocking to the area in search of jobs, opportunity, and a completely unprecedented level of personal freedom. The mills provided boarding houses where women could live on their own and make their own money, away from the control of parents or husbands. There were hundreds of girls who had never known their lives could consist of anything but the drudgery and isolation of a rural life. Now, for the first time, they were offered freedom and adventure. Berengara had never been to a carnival before. It was all so exciting. The colors, the lights. They didn't have anything like this back in Canada. She'd only been working at the mill for a week, and already she'd seen more of the world than she would in a year back on her family's farm. 
she could hardly think of what she'd like to do first. She meandered through the center of the carnival for a moment, but something was drawing her away from the flashy signs and dolled-up performers. Berengara wandered over to a small tent that sat alone, set aglow in the light of a single oil lamp. She moved aside the beaded curtain of the tent to reveal an old woman sitting hunched over a table. Without a word, the woman beckoned her in. Berengara shivered as a cold wind blew through the curtain behind her. Berengara sat down across from the woman, whose wrinkled skin hung loosely around the corners of an unsettling smile. Her eyes were covered with a milky white haze, and with a start, Berengara realized that the old woman was blind. The fortune teller laid out a series of cards on the table in front of her. They were embossed with blue and gold symbols on the back. Strange symbols that Berengara had never seen before. She began to chant in a foreign tongue, and suddenly Berengara felt uneasy. This wasn't the pleasant experience she had bargained for. One by one, the woman began to flip over the cards. She leaned over the table, gazing at the strange pictures, as though she could see them. In an ancient voice, she told Berengara that she would meet a handsome man, a man with dark hair and piercing green eyes. She warned Berengara that she would have love, but it would come at a price. Finally, she had flipped over all the cards but one. With an air of great gravity, she picked up the last card on the table. She looked at it with her misty eyes, and her face grew pale. Berengara's heart was pounding, her head was spinning, and her throat felt dry. She snatched the card out of the woman's hand. The hollow face of Death's head peered back at her from atop his skeletal horse. Berengara felt her whole body grow cold. She didn't understand the symbols on most of the cards, but this one was unmistakable. She fled the tent and did not look back. The summer of 1849 whizzed by, and eventually Berengara forgot the fortune teller's words. She was swallowed up by the hustle and bustle of life at the mill. That was until one day when her carding machine broke down and a young machinist was sent to fix it. As soon as she saw him, the words of the fortune teller came back to her. But with skepticism gained from the passing of time, Berengara dismissed them. She did not want to think about dark prophecies or grim futures. She only wanted to introduce herself to the dark-haired, green-eyed man who stood before her. William Long was handsome and charming. On their first walk together, he bought Berengara a white rose and told her he'd never met anyone quite like her. They spent three blissful months together, and then came November. When she'd heard that William had been fired from the mill, Berengara rushed to his boarding house. She found him already packing his things. He was headed home to Biddeford. She begged him to stay, but he told her there was nothing left for him in Sacco. She said she could follow him there, but he wouldn't hear of it. He didn't want to marry her, and he never would. 
She cried for days and couldn't even bring herself to go to work. For a long time, she was too brokenhearted to eat or sleep. But eventually, her heart began to heal. Berengara resolved that she would find another man, a better man. And perhaps she would have, had she not discovered that she was pregnant with William's child. When she told William, he suggested that perhaps there were people in town who could help her with that. The canvas sack was heavy, so terribly heavy. As he dragged the bag, James's mind drifted back to what Dr. Roth had said to the school board. James Smith shouldn't be a doctor. He lacks the discipline to learn, the patience to practice, and a basic sense of right and wrong. Those words had gotten him expelled from medical school and ruined his life. He shook his head, angrily dispelling the memory. He had made mistakes, certainly, but he had learned what not to do. He wouldn't do it wrong again, not ever. Besides, wasn't she the sinner? Wasn't she the one who had soiled herself with lust, with the pleasures of the flesh? He was not to blame for what had happened. In Newburyport, he'd been on the verge of giving up his practice, letting it all fall apart. But then he'd come to Sako, and for the first time, he'd heard the voices. They told him what to do, showed him his great potential. As James reached the river, they came to him again. The voices soothed him. They told James how he'd show the people who had doubted him. He'd show them all what a good doctor he was. He heaved the burlap sack into the water and watched as it sank beneath the waves. He would not do it wrong again. Just as he finished cleaning the last traces of blood from the wooden floorboards in the back room, he heard the bell above the shop door chime. He hurried to the front to greet his guests. A young woman ducked inside, squinting through the dust and dim light. She was beautiful, tall and thin, with long, glossy curls of jet-black hair. A young man followed behind her, a guiding hand on her back and another around her wrist. They proceeded through the aisles of jars filled with pickled bits of flesh in musty, viscous liquids. The woman's eyes grew wide as they made their way to the counter, where an array of glittering metal instruments hung from a wooden beam. The young man introduced himself as William. The woman did not give her name. She seemed nervous and agitated. He told Dr. Smith that they'd been trying to find help for her condition. She had tried taking a concoction called Savin, but it had been weeks and nothing had changed in the young woman's condition. The man said they were desperate for another answer. Dr. Smith looked down at his mortar and pestle as he listened to the tale. He had no formal training, no real education as a doctor. He had promised that he would not do it wrong again. But he had learned so much from the last one. He was better now. He was a good doctor. A week later, the girl arrived for the procedure. Dr. Smith felt confident that this would be the time he finally got it right. He led the girl up the rickety wooden steps at the side of the building. 
and into the room where he would perform the operation. He noticed she was trembling as he helped her up onto the bed. He told her not to worry, that he was a professional. He'd give her a dram of whiskey and she wouldn't feel a thing. The girl was dozing as he made his first incision. Most doctors would not attempt such a surgical approach, but he had tried it their way and he had failed. He would find a new way to perform the procedure. If he could not dilate the cervix, he would go in through the abdomen. It had never even been tried before, and for his successful innovation, he would be hailed as a genius. As soon as the knife sliced into her flesh, the girl began to stir. He had worried about this. Damn women couldn't control themselves. He would have to strap her down to keep her from moving. Once she had been lashed to the bed, he went to continue the procedure, but he noticed there was some sort of dust in the wound, so he sloshed some warm water on it and went on. He had made it through most of the surface tissue to the muscle beneath before the woman began to wake. She started to scream, but he soldiered on. He must complete the operation. As he reached the peritoneum, her screams had begun to dry up. By the time he slipped his forceps under what he thought was the womb, she had passed out entirely. But it was not the womb. It didn't look like it had in his anatomy books. He wiped a drop of sweat from his brow, trying not to let the salty fluid fly into the open cavity below. He needed to take a break. He turned around, dropping the forceps from his shaking hand, wincing as a drop of blood glinted in the firelight. Suddenly, he was seized by a terrible rage. Why couldn't it have been easy? Why couldn't it have been like he had thought it would be? He seized a perforator. He could hear the voices again. They told him he could do it. He would do it. This slattern would not defeat him. They'd all see how good a doctor he was. It had been three days since the operation, and the woman would not stop moaning. She claimed to be in terrible pain, but Dr. Smith knew it was all lies. Lies and falsehoods designed to make him seem like a fool. For all he knew, she was sent to him by the same men who barred him from medicine, sent specifically to make him seem incompetent, as though he didn't know what he was doing. But he knew. The voices told him the truth. As he stood looking out over the river, he could hear them. They whispered to him through the rush of the water, warned him of her lies. He wouldn't let her win, wouldn't let her tarnish his name. He leaned down and put a hand into the cold water of the river. They would show him how. Dr. Smith mounted the stairs to her attic room. She was still moaning, the brat. She wasn't in any real pain. She was just exaggerating. He stood over her bed. Her once lovely face looked green and sickly. The sheets were filthy, crusted over with blood and yellow pus. He was not to blame for this. She had brought this suffering upon herself. He would end her pain, put her out of her misery. 
he could almost hear the rush of the water, the voices beneath it calling, calling for him to end it. He leaned over her, placed a hand over her mouth. She resisted, fighting back against him, but she was weak. It wasn't long before the light in her terrified eyes began to dim. Her body became limp. She fell back against the filthy pillow, and she was still. The voices told him what to do. The ropes bit against his fingers as he dragged the body through the mud and muck, tied to whitewashed boards. Finally, he reached the bank of the river. The water dashed past him in a rapid fury, gurgling a command inside his head. He slipped the boards into the river and watched as they floated away. More from the river's terrible curse after this. And now, back to the curse of the Saco River. On a spring afternoon in 1850, a young man was working to help a neighbor clear a clogged brook near the Biddeford town center when he made a ghastly discovery. The body of a young woman had been tied to a whitewashed plank. Parts of the corpse were still frozen from the icy river water. She had been dressed in a light shift, blue stockings, and a nightcap. When the coroner removed the calico apron that covered the victim's head, he was faced with a horrifying surprise. The woman's face had been eaten by rats. The only thing left to identify her was her beautiful, long, dark hair. Eventually, a local man was arrested for the murder. He had been living under the assumed name of James Smith. He billed himself as a doctor, but as was discovered during his trial, he had no real medical training or experience. He'd been hired by William Long to perform an abortion on a woman who was given the pseudonym of Mary Bean, whose real name was Baron Guerra Caswell. In the 19th century, an abortion was a dangerous procedure, even in the hands of an experienced physician. But when performed by an amateur like Dr. Smith, it was almost guaranteed to be deadly. During the trial, Dr. Smith claimed Baron Guerra had died of an infection, but he confessed to attempting to dispose of her body by tying it to a board and setting it adrift on the Saco River. He had hoped the body would drift out to sea, but the winter cold froze the board in place before it could even make it out of the city. During the trial, Baron Guerra's life was trotted out as a cautionary tale a just dessert for a sinner. In truth, she was just an unlucky girl, the victim of circumstance, or perhaps something more sinister. Dr. Smith would only end up serving two years in prison before his charges were reduced to manslaughter, and he was released for time served. Death was a constant in the Saka River, and years passed with people complacently used to tragedy. Yet people hoped this had changed, when in 1947, the Maine Sunday Telegram had declared that, with a summer free of mysterious river deaths, 
this would be the year that the curse of the Saco River was finally broken. Of course, many of the residents of Saco and Biddeford knew better than to trust a silly declaration from a local paper. The leaves along the forested banks of the Saco River were already beginning to turn to brilliant shades of red and gold. Tommy wanted to savor the last warm day in autumn before the brutal chill of a main winter crept in. He and his buddies from the pool hall had grabbed some beers and headed down to the riverbed for a day of swimming. Of course Tommy had heard about the curse. He was part Sokoki himself. At least that's what his grandmother had always told him. But apparently the curse was broken now. He needn't worry anymore. He had just waded into the cool, clear water when he spotted a figure on the opposite bank. It was a tall, thin woman with long, dark hair. Somewhere, he heard the sound of a baby screaming. The woman beckoned to him. Something drew him to her. She looked like someone he knew, someone he liked, loved even. Suddenly, he wanted nothing more than to be by her side. Against his better judgment, he began to swim. The woman headed towards the bend in the river. Tommy knew that the current was stronger and more dangerous further down, but it was like he couldn't help himself. As he swam away from his friends on the beach, the tree canopy overhead grew thicker, blocking out the bright sunlight of the autumn day. The birds had stopped chirping, and all he could hear was the roaring current. He looked back to the shore, but he couldn't see the woman on the banks anymore. Suddenly, the riverbed dropped out from under his feet. Fear gripped his heart, and Tommy turned back towards the shore. But before he could start swimming, he felt a tug. Something cold and wet was gripping his leg. He looked down to see a pale white hand attached to a creature like something out of a nightmare. Its pursed lips were curved in a grimace of concentration. It wanted him dead. Tommy kicked and screamed, but it was no use. In one swift tug, the hand had pulled him down below the rushing current of the river. Tommy tried to cry out, but he couldn't. If he opened his mouth to scream, he would only die faster. The thing was dragging him towards the bottom of the river. It bared its wretched lips to reveal a row of pointed yellow teeth. It bit down around his ankle, and a bloom of red filled the water. Tommy closed his eyes. There was nothing else he could do. A bright white light filled his vision. And then the world went black. Tommy woke up on the shore of the river. His face was pressed into the sandy bank, and the waves were gently lapping against his ankles. He raised himself up and rubbed his eyes. Some fifty yards away, he spotted a woman. She had long, dark hair, and she wore a shift of what looked like deerskin. A little boy toddled beside her, holding her hand. Tommy tried to call out to them, but they seemed to ignore him. Then, as they reached the edge of the forest, 
they vanished into thin air. Later on that evening, Tommy would tell his grandmother what he had seen. She nodded wisely, telling him that he had been spared the curse of the river because of his Sokoki blood. He had thought the curse was broken. He had thought he was safe. His grandmother laughed, telling him that the curse would never be broken, not as long as there was a river, and not as long as there were men to die in it. Most New Englanders living along the Saco will tell you that the river spares those with Abenaki blood in their veins. In fact, many swimmers have reported close brushes with death that end in miraculous recoveries. And survivors of the river's fury sometimes attribute their good fortune to an Abenaki heritage. Perhaps the things that lurk beneath the water's surface can sense the presence of those who do not belong. Maybe they know you have no claim to this land, and maybe they want to get you out any way they can. It's late when you finally arrive at the campsite, and you have to set up your tent in the dark. You thought it would be nice to get away from the hustle and bustle of the city, but now you're not so sure. The river is beautiful, and it's a perfectly pleasant, warm summer night. It's just, something feels off. These woods are so foreign. They feel somehow foreboding, like entering a room you know is off limits, or poking around a stranger's house when you know you shouldn't. You feel as though your presence isn't welcome here. You walk down to the shore and gaze out across the river. The Saka looks strange at night. The water seems thick and it makes you think of blood. You had hoped to go for a nighttime swim once your tent was set up, but now you feel a terrible, overwhelming sense of dread. You ignore your instincts and step into the water anyway. As you do, the current seems to grow stronger. It's almost as if the river wants to pull you under. For a moment, you imagine you can hear voices underneath the sound of the rushing river, murmuring evil words. You think you see something out of the corner of your eye, a flash of white in the dark. You try to turn around, but the current is strong. Reeds tug at your legs like icy fingers. You tear yourself out of the water. You want to get out of here, pack up your tent and leave. You head towards the forest where the trees, they seem to be moving. Somehow they are swaying closer and closer to you, looming over you like a gallows. You see eyes in the night, all around you, terrible blinking red eyes. There are shadows shifting through the trees. You spin around. Dark shapes are emerging from the water. You try to tell yourself that your mind is playing tricks on you, but as they come closer, you know that the dark, shuffling figures are real. The closest one was once a woman with long, dark hair. Now, her features are mangled and bloody. A rat runs down her shoulder, and you shudder in horror. You forget your tent and take off running. The last thing you hear is a whisper on the wind, telling you, 
to never return. There are places in this world where the injustices of history are so great that they spill over into the present. Along the banks of the Saco River, the evil of men who are long gone lingers. It casts a shadow over anyone who would dare to look for it. Even today, 400 years after Squandro was said to have cursed the river, the people who live on its banks treat its waters with caution and respect. While they may no longer be superstitious, the river still consistently claims the lives of some who dare to venture into its currents. At the Saco River, any dip could be your last. Thanks again for tuning into Haunted Places. We'll be back next Thursday with a new episode. You can find more episodes of Haunted Places, as well as other podcast shows on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, or your favorite podcast directory. Several of you have asked how to help us. If you enjoy the show, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. I'll see you next week. Haunted Places was created by Max Cutler. It's a production of Cutler Media and is part of the Parcast Network. It's produced by Max and Ron Cutler. Sound designed by Kenny Hobbs. With production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Liebeskind. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Carly Madden. Haunted Places is written by Zoe Luisa Lewis. I'm Greg Polson.